Wonderful, wonderful worship. Thank you so much, uh, band, worship team. You guys just lead us right into worship every week so beautifully. Thank you for all you're doing. Uh, Liz, I hope you're enjoying this series of Bible characters. Our goal is that we get through this series, you're going to be able to look back and say, man, I have another understanding now about Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and, you know, and, and on and on and on. And during the month of May, we switched over to uh, exclusively female characters in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of you grew up in church all your life. You've never heard a sermon about a woman. True enough. Never heard a sermon about a woman. And, uh, and if you did hear one, it was a, a cameo from the New Testament. Certainly not about these heroic women of the Old Testament who were difference makers in their generation. And by not knowing their stories, we have a real skewed point of view about manhood, womanhood, uh, unless we're talking about them. And hopefully this last four or five weeks has been a little bit eye-opening about Tamar, and uh, Rahab, and uh, uh, we're talking about Ruth uh, today, and Queen Esther uh, in a couple of weeks. So, anyway, let's uh, start where we need to start. Uh, I, last week when we did the graduation Sunday, we honored uh, the four young ladies out of our youth department that are going on to the university. I've been just kind of reflecting on that, and I'm watching a lot of your Facebook feeds with graduations and parties and, you know, and, and scholarships and awards and honoring our kids and all of this. And, and all week I've been just thinking about that. And, I, and I've been trying to figure out how to say what I want to say, and it, it's hard to frame it because I don't want you to think I'm just bragging about my kids. That's really not what I'm saying. I'm really bragging about your kids. But let me say it this way. One of the joys of being a parent is watching your children develop into wonderful human beings. That really is one of the joys of parenthood. For those of you who have little guys, or two, you're in the hardest stage right now. Okay? Don't listen to the other people who say, well, the junior high years are terrible, and the high school years are terrible, and the blah, blah, It's not that way at all. They're just bad parents. Don't listen to them. Okay? <laughs> Do the hard work with the little ones. And then it'll get easier and easier and easier as you go. Teach them the respect and, and love and courtesy. and kind. When they're this big, when they get this big, it'll be there, okay? And uh, I just want to say it again. One of the joys of being a parent is watching that child you've invested in turn into an adult that is somebody you like. A wonderful human being. Uh, now, now I'll switch it to be personal. I have two grown young men. If they weren't my children and they were your children and you introduced me to them, I would like to be friends with them. I would like to have a cup of coffee with them, go to a ball game with them, light the grill and talk to them. They're wonderful human beings. Now, those of you who are younger parents, or your older parents get what I'm saying, those of you who are younger parents, you're going to see this happen in the coming years as your children develop into a product, a human being that's like, oh my goodness, 
That warms my heart. Look at their love. Look at their kindness. Look at their compassion. Look at their hard work. Look at their diligence. Look at their love for Christ. Look at their passion to pursue God. Look at their heart for missions. Look at their heart to help the refugees and immigrants. Look at their heart. Look at how respect... When you see that, it's going to give you a, a joy, a real joy in your heart to know that you had a part in developing... Yeah, gosh, I see mother and son back here. You've got a grown son who turned into a wonderful human being, Donna. A wonderful human being. That's so gratifying. Now, let me turn this spiritual. Some of you don't have children. You're not even married yet. Some of you are grown, and your children are grown and having their children. Let me just say this to all of us. Another of life's joys is watching your spiritual children develop into wonderful kingdom people who image God with their lives. So now, this is a whole nother joy that even if you don't have biological children, everyone can experience this joy. It's the joy of making disciples and watching those you invest in. Letty, when you sit at your kitchen table with those women and you're watching them be transformed over a period of time, that's that parental pride. It's that kind of feeling where you're like, wow, listen to them quote God's Word. Look at the love they're exhibiting. Look at the heart they have to follow Christ. Look at the passion they have to be more like our, our Savior. And it's so fulfilling. It's so fulfilling to see. And matter of fact, this is one of the missing joys in the modern church. Because in the modern church, all we do is go to church about once a month. I think the average Christian gives about $300 a year. Really not totally committed to anything. They come, they go, they do, but there's no transformation. And if you're not in the discipleship process or making disciples, you're missing out on the grand joy that God designed for His church of investing in the lives of others and creating a real spiritual community where people are being transformed. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where people should be transformed. Now, I think we can agree on that. Whether it's happening or not, that's what should be happening. God's house should be a place where the community of believers is working together to bring about the transformation, partnering with the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing I know about all of us is we all learn, uh, yearn to be loved. We all need to love someone. And we all want to be loved. Love is an element that life just isn't good without. There's no such thing as a really quality life with, with no love involved in life. We need to be loved, but you also need to love. You need to have people in your life that you are pouring love into. And I pray that such joy that I'm describing and such love that I'm describing are part of your experience this summer as we serve together here at Cornerstone. As I move to the story of Ruth today, the story of Ruth is both a story of joy and it is definitely a, a love story. It is also a story about children turning out right. Uh, you may not know it yet, but hang in there. You'll see it before part two is finished. The story of Ruth is about a good finish. It's about people coming to maturity, finding their place, and as adults, you look at them and say, wow, these turned out to be quality, incredible human beings who love God. 
All right, let me see if I can explain the first part of the book of Ruth to you. Let's get the setting first. The time is the book of Judges, the time of the Judges. So now in your Bible, you know, Joshua judges Ruth, but Ruth actually happens, time stamp-wise, setting-wise, during the book of Judges. For those of you who weren't here for our study as we talk through the Judges, let me just give a quick recap. When Moses was alive, the people did right. They followed the Lord. He passed the baton to Joshua. As long as Joshua was alive, Joshua chapter 2 chronicles all of this. As long as Joshua was alive, the people obeyed God and served God. But after Joshua died and that next, his generation of elders, his generation of leadership died, the next generation that came along, here's what the Bible says about them, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Now, let me just try to describe this to you. Paganism is you doing what's right in your own eyes. Paganism is you defining God as you wish to define Him. You say, well, God is Mother Nature, and God is planet Earth, or God is this, or God is that. When you start defining what God is, that's paganism. You're making your own version of God. And by the way, that's what we've done in America, in post-Christian America. We still call Him God. We use this term, but we've designed a God that's not the Bible God. Now, here's what God, here's what Christianity is and why it's different. Christianity demands that you worship God as God has revealed Himself. In other words, God is, and God is a certain way, and God wrote a book to tell you what He was like and to tell you about Him, and He revealed Himself through that book called the Bible, and through that book, we learn how God is and what He is and who He is and how He is. And we're to worship Him as He's revealed Himself. That's the only way we can ensure that we've not made up God. Is that, is that clicking with everybody? You say, well, how do I know I've not made an idol? Or something? Well, that's how. Because you're worshiping God as He revealed Himself through His Word. Now, in the book of Judges, in the era of the Judges, now they're not judges like in a black robe and a gavel and a, and a, and a courtroom. <clears throat> the, the word judge really means deliverer. They're deliverers, national deliverers. And so what God would do is the people would rebel, they would go after idols, they would make up their own gods, and when they rebelled against God, He would raise up a deliverer. And Jeremy preached about Deborah. She's one of the deliverers. They're both male and female personalities that God raised up, amazing leaders, and their job was to unify Israel and lead them out to battle against their enemies. That was their job. It was a very military leadership, unifying, uh, rally the troops, big personality kind of task. And we've talked about uh, Jephthah, and we talked about Samson, and we talked about Deborah and uh, 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 Jael, who drove the tent peg through the general's temples. Remember that? Just some wild, wild stories in the book of Judges. But the book of Judges are this. Everybody does what everybody wants to do. So God has to raise up deliverer. The deliverer will call him back to God. The deliverer will die. The people will do whatever they want to do. It's, it's worship God, idolatry. Repent, worship God, idolatry. It's just a big cycle. The whole book of Judges. The story of Ruth is embedded into this time period. Here we go. Ruth 1.1. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, that matters because that's essential to the story. Whoever the author is of the book of Ruth, <clears throat> we don't know that Ruth <clears throat> wrote it herself. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whoever the author is of the book of Ruth, 
is incredibly talented in four chapters, can tell a multi-decade story with such concise language. There's so much dense uh, truth being communicated in just a few words. So we already know we're in the time of the judges. We already know there's a famine in the land. Now why you care is because it's an agrarian society, which means, uh, for those of you who grew up in uh, Springtown, it means it's an agricultural society. It means that uh, uh, there's uh, farmers and tractors and cows and chickens and uh, that's the kind of society it is. It's completely agricultural based, agrarian society. And in an agrarian culture, the worst thing that can happen to the culture is a famine. No cow food, no people food, no milk, no eggs, no, everything starts falling apart. And the famines, when they would come in, they were cyclical and they would come in, they lasted sometimes Seven years, sometimes ten years, multi-year famines. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, south Israel, south of Jerusalem, just a few miles, together with his wife and his sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, back across the Jordan River into Canaanite territory. So, here's what we know. Economic crisis in Israel... Agrarian culture, they, they're going into a recession, clearly, uh, disastrous. They're not going to be able to find food. God's people are facing this uh, recession or depression. And the first wave of characters have been introduced. We've got a man, his wife, and two sons. We're not given their ages. Our guess is they're in their teens. Our guess is they're probably teenagers. Because of the economic situation, this man, his wife Naomi, and their two sons have made a decision and they said, let's get out of Bethlehem. There's nothing to eat here. I mean, things are drying up. Uh, I hear across, other side of the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River over there, in Canaanite territory among the Moabites, which is a brand of Canaanite, among the Moabites, there's still a little bit better economic situation. Let's go over there and see if we can find some better job prospects. Now that's how it starts. Now let me tell you, you already have a foreshadowing of what's about to happen with the mention of the word Moab. It's a Canaanite territory. The foreshadowing that the author is trying to give you is this. Once you go into the land of Canaanites with two teenage boys, they're going to marry two idolaters. Anybody feel that coming? And the author in one verse has already set that Bad feeling up in the pit of your stomach. We're going to take our two teenage boys over here to live back across the river where those stories I told you about the spear and the, and the, and the mixed multi... Last week all happened across the river. They're going to take their teenage boys across the river and sure enough, they're going to marry some idolaters. We come now to a time of tragedy. After living in Moab 10 years, the author just is fast-forwarding. After living in the enemy territory for 10 years, tragedy not only strikes, but it strikes again, and then it strikes a third time. Now, some of you have suffered loss. Some of you have been through a recession, a layoff. Some of you have buried a loved one in recent years. You understand what tragedy feels like and how it affects the course of your life. Hear what I'm saying. In this 10-year span, 
then tragedy strikes, and then it strikes again, and then it strikes again. Let me read for you. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with the two sons. They both married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, and the other, Ruth. I want to pause right here. Orpah and Ruth, the Canaanite women, the Moabite women, have married the Israelite boys from Bethlehem. The husband is dead. Just a little factoid for you. There's a famous person in America named Oprah Winfrey. Her name is Orpah on her birth certificate, named after this character. Uh, but nobody could pronounce it correctly. They always called her Oprah. So she just said, just call me Oprah. She's actually named Orpah on her birth certificate, and this is the character she's named after. Which, just as another side note, is not the right character to be named after. This is the one that's going to go back to idolatry. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. And after they had lived there ten years, fast forward, both Malon and Kilion also died. Both boys died now. They're grown men. Now they've died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Boy, the author is just speeding forward here. I mean, we're literally just a few sentences in now. We've been introduced to the main character of the story. Her name is Ruth. We know she's one of the Canaanite daughter-in-laws. Along with Orpah, now all three of them are widows. Let's make some assumptions. I think it would be safe to. If they married in their teens, which was the custom, uh, when you came to womanhood, 14, 15, 16, if they married in their teens, Ruth and Orpah are widows now in their mid to late 20s. Now, I've said this to you many times. When you see widow in the Bible, or we talk about widows that were helping overseas, don't always... Think of a 75-year-old. Widows, and these in particular, these are two mid-twenties widows. They're young women. And whether it's through famine, whether it's through pestilence, we're not told the details. Now the family has suffered the loss of the dad, the loss of both boys, and now we have three widows. In the ancient world, a widow's survival depended upon her male relatives. If you were widowed in the ancient world and even in modern uh, India today and Nepal and that part of the world, if you're widowed, you're totally dependent upon your husband's family, the male relatives. Now it gets worse because in this era, and I've been talking to you about this for more than a month now, you're in a patriarchal society. And in a patriarchal society... The world was built for the men to succeed and not the women. A man could easily enough start over. In other words, if a man lost his wife or went through a tragedy like this, the, the society was built where the man could easily enough find a job, he could rebuild a house, he could find a young wife, and she could be decades, many decades younger than him. He could be an old man, find a 20-year-old wife or a teenage wife, and start having children again and rebuild an entire family if he had to. But starting over was quite the opposite for a woman in a patriarchal culture. Women, as I have explained to you, secured their place 
in a patriarchal society through two means. A woman secured her value in society through marriage and through childbearing. The gold medal, the gold standard for a woman was seven sons. If you could produce seven sons, you're like, you're like the ultimate Israeli woman. You're the gold medal, gold star, gold standard, cut above. That is the ultimate of womanhood. And you secured your place in the patriarchal world through those backward kind of thinking of, of marriage and being able to produce male heirs for the husband. So now here we find ourselves five sentences into a story and the three women are neither married nor mothers. The only two things that make you valuable in a patriarchal society. Three women who are neither married now nor mothers. So in this situation, a woman in the ancient culture was left to choose between terrible options. She could become a slave and she could sell her service to a family uh, for a predetermined period of time. This was a law in Israel. You could make yourself a bond servant and you could say for room and board and a little bit of money or if I have debts that I need to work off, I'll work for you X number of years. And there were laws in place that on a certain year you let the slaves go free. Anyway, they had a whole system for this. So you could become a slave or you could become a prostitute. That's always an option in any culture. And certainly in these ancient cultures, you can become a prostitute. Or, <clears throat> three, you could just face destitution. In other words, you could become a homeless person. You could just live on the streets and figure it out and try to, you know, one day hope the famine passes and somebody will be nice to you and somebody will be kind. And, uh, but you realize there are not good options. I mean, if I'm giving you options of slavery, prostitution, or destitution, you're just like, okay, how about D, none of the above? You know, there are no good choices for them. And it's not left to our imagination to wonder, I wonder what they're thinking. It's not, you don't have to leave it to your imagination because Naomi goes on the record and she says exactly what she's thinking. Let me read it for you. Ruth 1.20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full from Bethlehem, but the Lord is bringing me back empty. Don't call me. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. No, you don't have to guess what she's thinking. She tells you. She is bitter. She is angry. But let me tell you why you should have mercy on her. She suffered through three tragedies piled on top of each other. Her heart is broken. So can you cut her a little slack? Okay? Uh, yes, we will. Cut her a little slack. She is suffering. She is hurt. They have no place to live. They have no way to eat. And honestly, at this point in the story, they have no hope of surviving. Naomi says, there is nothing I can do except go back to Bethlehem. I don't see anything. In, I mean, I'm looking at now it's not an option. Prostitution is not an option. I'm not going to live on the streets. That's not an option. I mean, there is no option. The only option I see is I'm just going to collect what I can carry in my hands and I'm going back to Bethlehem, to our place, and I'm just going 
to go home. Now, the first bit of good news comes in verse 6. It's time to go home. First bit of good news in the story comes right now when the author tells us that after 10 years of famine, the famine is finally broken in Bethlehem. The harvest is coming in and the reports on the agricultural page are saying it's going to be a bumper crop. The famine is over. The rains have returned. God is blessing his people. I'm reading now from Ruth 1.6. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them food, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Let me read verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back. You're not coming with me. You're 20 years old. Listen, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And I give you my blessing. May the Lord show kindness on you as you have shown kindness on your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you to find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all wept aloud. So I want you to create the scene in your mind. You see it, right? The three women are huddled. The tears are flowing. They've got their bags packed. And Naomi's like, no, you're not going. You're going to stay here with your people. Go back to your mom and dad's house. Start your life over. Verse 10. And they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands the author right now is flashing back to the patriarchal culture do I have any more am I in my old age am I going to marry again and have sons that will be your husbands why would you come with me now verse 12 return home my daughters I am too old to have another husband And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. There's no hope for me. There's hope for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, this is an amazing paragraph. I'll explain it very quickly. And those of you who've been with me for the series understand exactly what's happening. You're late to the game here. The laws of patriarchy and primogeniture are kicking in now. And Naomi is talking about the cultural laws of Israel. There is a custom that if your husband dies, the brother will take you, the brother-in-law will take you as a wife. And he'll give you a child and raise up seed to the dead brother. Now we've talked about this with Tamar. The whole story of Tamar is this story. Naomi is saying to them, listen, in this case, there are no brothers to marry the girls. And Naomi says, I'm an old woman, and even if I got married and got pregnant tomorrow, you going to wait around 20 years, single, until I have a 20-year-old to give you as a husband, and you're 40? 45? 50? That's, that's not a good plan. Listen, I don't have any male kinsmen. I don't have any male relatives. Uh, I, I can't marry you to any of my relatives. I'm sorry, girls. 
not a plausible plan to go with me. You go back to your father's house. Go to your mother's house. It's not too late for you to have a happy life. It's too late for me. There is no hope for my family. My family is going to die in obscurity. My family has no future. Verse 14. At this, they wept aloud all over again. More tears start to flow. And so while there's tears and there's hankies and there, there, uh, uh, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Look, said Naomi, the mother-in-law, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and, 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 and to her gods. Go back with her. Now, if I had three weeks, I would unpack that for you. But sometimes God's people are not great witnesses. Sometimes you and I get so bitter and angry and backslidden that we're just not good representatives of Yahweh God or Jesus Christ to the people around us. You understand what I'm saying? Naomi is hurt so deeply. She said, go back to your people and go back to your gods. Why would she say that? Because she's mad at her God. The real God. (laughs) Because life hasn't gone the way she thought it would go. She's had tragedy upon tragedy. Now, I'm still not judging her. I feel for her. And if you don't feel for her, you're not reading the story correctly. You see her lashing out against God. Now she tells two daughter-in-laws that are from idolaters who thought they were going to marry into God's people family, they hear the matriarch of the family say, go back to your gods. What does that say? What does it say? But watch what happens right here. It's time to commit. The words that are about to be spoken by Ruth the Canaanite, not God's person, Ruth the idolater, Ruth the Canaanite, are some of the most powerful words in the entire Old Testament. I remember when I was a teenager, I had to memorize these two verses. In the old KJV, it reads very different than it reads. And entreat me not to leave thee or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. It's all that high English uh, Shakespeare stuff. It reads very differently. Uh, I memorized it when I was just a teenager. And I still have it there hidden away in the recesses of my heart somewhere. But listen to the words of, of Ruth now. Naomi says, go back to your gods, go back to your people. And Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and says, basically, I don't think you understand the level of my commitment. When I married your son, this became my family. And family is family. And not only have I switched families, I've switched gods. And you don't seem to have noticed Now watch what happens. Here it comes. But Ruth replied, Don't you urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, you say it out loud. Where you stay, your people will be, and your God, well that's a pretty good commitment right there. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
where they put you in the ground, Naomi, I'm going to be put in the ground in that same piece of dirt. Boy, now I'm liking this gal. This girl's got some commitment. Now Ruth, from this moment, merges as the lead character of the story. It's her story. Ruth is fully aware that she is making a choice now to uproot her entire life. Ruth understands she is facing a decision, idolatry or God, and she's choosing God. She understands that she is choosing people, pagans or God's people, to be her people. And she's choosing God's people. She's chosen God, she's chosen Naomi, and she's chosen God's people. But here's what she also has chosen with this decision. She has chosen to be an immigrant. Now, that's not an easy lifestyle to choose. Uh, Many of you could not imagine moving to another country and starting over your entire life with nothing but what's in your hands. It's it's a mind-blowing, it's daunting to even think about that. Being an immigrant is not an easy life, not in this era, as we watch people come with only the clothes on their backs. And it certainly was not easy to be an immigrant in ancient Israel. Her people are idolaters. They are the, now, classic enemies of Israel. And she has made a decision to follow God and live among the Israelites, God's people, even though she will be an outsider living among God's people. Now, those two verses are so deep. I want to be sure you understand what just happened. Ruth has made a five-fold commitment to her mother-in-law. Here's what she has committed. She said, I'm going to be loyal in location. Naomi, wherever you go geographically, I'm going to be with you. She would be loyal in lodging. She said, wherever you stay, whether it's a barn or whether it's a cave or whether it's a palace, I'm going to be staying right there with you. She said, I'm going to be loyal in people. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to forsake the land of my nativity. I'm going to forsake the Canaanites. I don't care about ever going back to my family or homeland. Your family is my family. She said, I'm going to be loyal in religion. Your God will be my God. I'm going to forsake the idols of my family. And your God, I swear allegiance to the God of Israel. And lastly, she said, I'm going to be loyal in death. I expect they'll put me in the same dirt right beside you. Wherever you are buried, there I will be buried. Now, I want to say this to you this morning for holding your hearts for a couple of weeks. That's a serious level of commitment. Don't you think? I mean, that's like things I would say to my wife. Or she would say to me, where you go, I go. My family is your family. Your God is my God. Whether we live in a tent or whether we live in a palace, I'm going to live right there with you for the rest of my life. Where they bury you, they'll bury me. I would say that's about as high level as commitment as somebody could make to somebody else. And Ruth has just pledged that to Naomi. Now, when I'm reading this, something rises up in me and I'm saying, yes, that right there. God, whatever you put into the heart of that woman, that's what I want. 
God, whatever you have put into the heart of Ruth, that's what we want for our community here at Cornerstone. I can say it in other words. I want to be surrounded by people who are committed like this woman Ruth is committed. I personally would like to have loyal friends who are so committed to me as a friend. I want to live in the community of loyal people. I want to worship with people who come together and they want to hear from God and they want to change their lives to be more like Christ and they want to move forward and they want to serve and they want to respond to God. I want to help raise up a generation of young men and young women who are loyal and decisive and committed to making disciples for Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, why is pastor here? I'm here because I believe you are those people. That's why I'm here. If you want to know why I'm a member of this church, maybe you're not a member yet, you're like, I wonder why he's a member. This is why I'm a member. Because the kind of people that I'm describing right now are the kind of people that are in this room. This is what our family here is all about. And I am eager to invest the next generation, the next decade of my life, into raising up a group of men and women who are loyal and decisive and committed to making disciples for Jesus Christ. Now, Naomi's been traumatized, and so I want you to cut her a little slack, okay? She has been traumatized. Grief has taken her deep into depression. She is tragically without a future. She is utterly hopeless. She has nothing. She has no one. She's lost it all. She has no plan and she has no people. I mean, her only plan is just, I'm going to grab my purse and I'm going home with the clothes on my back. Now, what's happening as the story introduces Ruth is that Ruth emerges with commitment now and Ruth is going to change Naomi's life. Ruth's commitment, verbalized, has really left Naomi speechless. She has no retort and no response to what Ruth has committed. Uh, Go home. Go be with your family. Go worship your idols. I'm mad at God. It's Ruth that steps in and said, No, no, Mom, don't be mad at God. Your God is my God now. Your people are my people. You see how Ruth is comforting her by committing to her and by being loyal to her. Ruth is going to change Naomi's life. As a matter of fact, the determination of this young woman is going to breathe a new life into this broken woman, Naomi. From this point in the story going forward, the two of them are a team. This is what I want you to lock into. There is no separating them. From this point moving forward, the two of them are a team. They will help each other. When one is weak, the other one will be strong. When one doesn't know what to do, the other one will help them come up with a plan. When the other one needs advice, and vice versa, it's going to go for the rest of the story. From this moment forward, they are a team. And they will help each other. I want to ask you a question at this point in the sermon this morning. Who's on your team? Who's on your team? If I would ask Naomi or Ruth, they'd have an answer to this. They would say, here's our team right now. It's a team of two. Hopefully it'll grow in the days ahead, but it's a team of two right now. 
and we encourage each other and we pray for each other and we, we, we help each other and we keep each other accountable. Let me ask you a question. Who, who, what does your team look like? Who's on your team? If I ask Letitia that question, she's going to say, well, I've got a table full every week. That's one of my teams. We keep each other accountable. We pray for each other. And we're working through the Bible together. And we're learning God's Word together. And we're learning how to be like Jesus. And, and we've become a team. We pray for each other. We help each other. We care for each other. We, we, we love each other. We're a team. That's what discipleship is. It's about team. Now, many of you sitting here may be looking at this and you may be saying, I don't have a team. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is that the church's fault that you don't have a team? Or is it your fault at this point? Not that I'm trying to dog anybody, but I'm just trying to have some accountability this morning. If you're here and you're flying solo through life, is that because... I mean, you don't have any friends, you don't have a team, you don't have a disciple maker, you don't have a church family, you don't have community, and if you don't have it, why is it that you don't have it? Are you, have you been hurt? I get that. Naomi's deeply hurt. PTSD hurt. I mean, depression hurt. I mean, psychological damage hurt. She's bitter, she's angry. You know what her name means? Gladness, joy, graciousness, happy. She's Miss Congeniality, and they named her that. She's saying, don't call me Miss Congeniality, call me Miss Bitter. Miss Bitter, XBC of Israel. That's who I am. Now, she's hurt deeply. Now, here's a decision. You can tell everybody, leave me alone, I'm going to go solo. But maybe you need a Ruth in your life who will attach themselves to you and say, we refuse to let you go solo. Now, that's going to take two. You're going to have to do what Naomi does. You're going to have to allow somebody to come into your life and help you. If you feel all alone this morning, I want you to answer deep in your heart, is that because I won't let anybody help me and I won't let anybody come into my life? Or is that because nobody's trying to come into my life and be a friend to me? Because I want you to know there's a wonderful community around you that is willing this morning some of you here at Cornerstone have grown up spiritually just in the last few years right here at Cornerstone and in the discipleship process you've, you've been invested in and some of you are now leading and you're, you're, you're experiencing life change. You understand what it means to develop a team, to develop other team members, make disciples, get on mission. I want to be very clear with the Cornerstone congregation. For those that are new here and you're like, okay, what's different about this church and this church and this church? Again, not to speak against any other church. Our community is filled with wonderful churches. But each church has a little bit different personality, okay? And the one thing that really, maybe I want to say that distinguishes us, this is not the church where you show up once a month. That's not what we're shooting for. We're not shooting for a number. We're not shooting for a... We're not shooting for a popularity contest. We're shooting to develop a community that can build disciples. Really, we think this is what the church is all about. A place where you dedicate your energy and your wealth and your time and all that you are and all that you have into God's kingdom work so that people are becoming like Christ. 
And if I could challenge you young couples to anything, I would challenge you this morning to play the role of Ruth to someone else in this community. Be Ruth. Be the team member. Be the person who comes to a hurting person and says, we won't let you walk alone. I'm sorry, you're trying to push me away right now, but I refuse to be pushed away because you need someone in your life more than ever right now. By the way, isn't it strange that when we suffer and when we go through tragedy and when we get our feelings hurt, the first thing we want to do is leave the community of God's people. I just need to take some time off. I just need to be with myself. I just want to be alone. Or just That's the opposite of what needs to happen in that moment. And understand, that's a grieving reaction. It's a hurt reaction. But the roots of Cornerstone, and I mean that gender neutral, I mean men and women who have the character of this woman, need to recognize when people are saying, leave me alone, they don't need to be left alone. They need to be loved. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for. They need to be prayed for. They need to be befriended. They need someone who will say, no, no, listen, I'm, I'm going to walk with you through this thing you're going through. And we can go through it together. We can move forward. You don't move forward alone. We are better together. I want you to remember this. We are better together. And if you're trying to fly solo in this thing called Christianity, you're not going to get very far. It's not a solo thing. It's never designed to be a solo thing. Your decision to receive Christ is your decision, but it's all about then community at that, at that moment, okay? So it's time to move forward. This is what we're learning. Imagine how difficult it was for Naomi to go back home. They left wealthy landowners looking for a better economic decision, and they were smarter than the other people in the community. We're going to go over here where the prospects are better and, 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 and do better than you're going to do back here at home, suffering through the Depression. And now she returns home with the clothes on her back and whatever she can carry in her hands. No husband, no sons, emaciated from grief, eyes sunken with tragedy, leaning upon a Canaanite daughter-in-law for support. Now, if you think in your mind that Bethlehem is Fort Worth, you've got the wrong view. Bethlehem is a sleepy little village in this writing. It is nothing. It is just a dot on map. That's all it is, a crossroads. It is a sleepy little village with few hundred people, and everybody knows everybody's name, and everybody's kin to everybody, and they all know each other, and everybody knows all of your business. Anybody here grow up in a small town? Yeah, you get it then. That's exactly now the scene has shifted from Moab over to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is buzzing with the gossip. Do you know who's home? Do you know who's home? Do you know who's home? They're home. They're back. Come and see. And there is old haggard Naomi and the young Moabite Canaanite daughter-in-law. And in extreme heartache, I want to read the verses again. Naomi does something very, very human. She blames God for everything. I want to read it to you again. They went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women of the town said, Wait, look, can this be Naomi? Sunshine, happiness, congeniality, pleasantness. And Naomi said, Do not call me Naomi. I'm going to change my name. I'm the artist formerly known as Naomi. I am now Mara, 
Call me Mara because God has made my life bitter. Now, Naomi is hurt. You have to get that. And she has internalized everything. She's focused just on herself. And at this point, she is not even recognizing the incredible commitment that this wonderful young woman, Ruth, has made to her. I'm just hurt. I'm just, wait, here's Ruth, who's just committed to being a team with you and to helping you and to helping you start over. And she's still in her misery saying, woe is me, woe is me. I went away full. God's brought me back empty. And she doesn't realize that blessings are already starting to happen around her. And it's the woman next to her that's going to bring joy back into her life. Now, so far in all of this study we've been studying, from, from, from the Genesis all the way through, the one thing you should have figured out by now is that the Bible is filled with incredible plot twists. You think the story's going this way, it spins and goes this way. You, you, the bad guy becomes the good guy, the good guy becomes the bad guy. We don't know who's the good guy. And the, I still don't know if Samson's the good guy or the bad guy. I scratch my head all the time. Uh, you know, uh, it's all kinds of incredible plot twists. Now, this Samson's a good guy. It's the one in the Bible that's the, not sure about. I know this is a good guy. Uh, it's incredibly twisty and, and, and turning all the time. And God does the most amazing things through the lives of people who choose Him. I, I want you to hear what I'm saying. The plot twists are not just confined to the Bible. Some of you need a plot twist. Some of you need a shift. Some of you have suffered loss and tragedy and you're still in this phase that Naomi's in. You haven't fully come out of it yet and re-engaged. It's maybe time for a little shift. It's maybe time to recognize who's standing beside you. Not, I know you've lost someone, but look at who's with you. Look at who's with you. You're not alone this morning. I see families here. Your daughters are with you. Your children are with you. Your sons are with you. Your parents are with you. Multi-generational Christianity. Your friends are surrounding you this morning. None of you are alone unless you choose to be this morning. And even those of you who are saying, God, leave me alone, I'm mad at you. God's going to refuse to leave you alone. You go ahead and be mad if you need to be mad for a while. But hear me clearly. God is not going to forsake you. Never. Amen. Ever. He's not going to leave you alone. Right. If you get mad this afternoon, go home and shake your fist in the air and say, God, I'm hurt. Leave me alone. I just want you to know he's going to say, I get it. They killed my son too. I get it. They killed all my prophets. They killed all the people I sent to love them. I get it. It's a broken world. And I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to resolve it. But I'm not going to leave you alone because I love you too much to leave you alone. The Bible is filled with twists. And for those of you who think that, well, if I receive Christ as my Savior, I hear these preachers on TV say everything's going to work out fine. I want to say something slightly different this morning. You're a human. 
you should expect to have a human experience. Do you know what a human experience looks like? Humans get sick. Humans fall down. Humans get hurt. Relationships are messy. Parents fail. Children rebel. We have to make some trips to the cemetery. That's a human experience in a world that's rebelling against God. You say, Pastor, what should I expect? Expect to have a human experience. You say, well, then how is Christianity better than anything else? Well, here's the hope that I offer you this morning, that God will take the human experience and plot twist it so that even though you have a human experience, it ends happily ever after in victory, even after what could be tragic. God gives you joy. He restores the end of your life. He gives you purpose. He gives you something to live for. He gives you a mission to be on. Listen, you can't imagine most of the world's living with no purpose at all. God is offering you a reason to live. He's offering you a purpose, a mission to get up every day and be on His mission. He has promised never to leave you, never to forsake you, to always be kind to you, to always provide for you. And listen, remember Jesus' inaugural sermon. Now we're getting to the end now. Remember Jesus' inaugural sermon. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, walks back across the country, stands in the synagogue at Nazareth. They deliver him the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus stands up and reads Isaiah 61 and does his first public sermon there in his hometown. And he chose for his text these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners. Just a few moments ago, you sang a song that's very dear to us. And the song is about, here's what we have, a grave, and God's going to give us a garden. What we have is ashes. Now ashes in the Old Testament they would throw on their head as a sign of mourning and they would make themselves look ugly, you know what I'm saying, because they were mourning. I'm going to take ashes and I'm going to give you beauty instead. Let me read the next verse of Jesus' sermon. I will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The whole song you just sang in worship to God, and by the way, when you say, I wish we could worship like we did in the old days, you came just about as close, I think, as you could come to biblical worship when you sang that song just a minute ago. You were singing the book of Isaiah back to God, He's saying, this is who I am, and God's people are saying, and this is who we know you to be, and we worship you because you are that way. You'll take our ashes, and you'll give us beauty. You'll take away our grieving, and you'll give us joy instead. Joy instead of mourning. You'll fill us with praise instead of... Maybe it's not translating. Let me put it in a different language if it helps. 
God can take your layoff and He can turn it into a situation where you get your dream job. Upgrade. That's what God can do. You think, this is the end of the world, I lost my job. God said, no, I'm just setting you up for the bigger blessing that I have in your life. God can take your broken relationship and He can bring someone, God could bring someone new into your life today. God could bring someone into your life this week, those of you who are yearning for love. He could bring someone into your life this week, this summer, that would love you and cherish you and want to commit to you and spend a life with you as a companion. God could take a bashful introvert from this room and He could transform that person into a disciple-making kingdom apostle for Jesus Christ. I've seen God do it. He can take an unproductive believer who's never really produced any fruit and make them produce a hundredfold in the end of their life or the middle of their life. You say, well, I'm so far behind. It has nothing to do with it. God can twist everything around so that everything begins to line up all at once. God can take your tragedy and He can give you a ministry of encouragement. As a matter of fact, Paul says God comforts you. In the New Testament, he says God comforts you through your tragedy so that you can have a ministry of comforting others. For anyone in this room who's been through divorce or has buried a loved one or has dealt with mental illness or has dealt with physical illness or has dealt with with, with any kind of disability or you've dealt with any human problems at all, if God has seen you through that moment in your life, you're to use that as a ministry to others. That's what God can do. As you'll see next week, the big plot twists are yet to come. Let me hasten to the end of this one. The two widows arrive in Bethlehem. They have the clothes on their backs. They have whatever they can carry. Ruth says, I've got to get us something to eat. We have nothing to eat tomorrow. There's nothing to put on the table. That's a condition many of us have probably never been in. And Ruth says, I have to go work right now. I've got to go do something today if we intend to eat tomorrow, but I'm willing to work. And by the way, that's a great quality. And if I have three weeks, I could bend your ear about how to be successful in business. Number one, show up. Or school. Or life. Number two, show up early. Number three, be willing to work. Uh, That's another sermon. So Ruth says, I'm willing to work. And uh, she, she goes to work. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. I have no idea where I'm going, but here's what's... And there's some layers behind the story. Ruth understands the Jews better than Naomi does at times. And Naomi understands better than Ruth does at times. But Ruth has totally embraced being God's people. She's been studying their laws. And she understands there are laws in Israel that help the poor. And Ruth says, I'm willing to go work. And I'm going to find the near. It's harvest time. I'm going to find the nearest group of workers out in the field. I'm going to attach myself to them. And I'm going to start picking up. What's the right word? Little pieces of grain. Kernels. Kernel, I guess, is the right word. I'm going to go pick up individual corns individual wheat kernels. I'm going to go pick up heads. Whatever has fallen on the ground, I'm going to go pick up... It's been a long time since I've been on the farm. I'm going to go pick up the individual grains 
and put them in a basket and they let the poor people do that. And maybe by the end of the day I can grind that and make us a couple of tortillas. Okay? So let's just see what happens. And we said, go, my daughter. Ruth says, I have no idea where I'm going. Could I just say to you that God is never going to leave you. And if you have committed to God, if you've chosen God, God's chosen you, you're never going to be alone and you're never going to be without direction if you ask for it. Ruth thinks she's just wandering into the first field she sees. Not even close. The Holy Spirit of God is steering her right where He wants her to be. And if God's working in her heart, He's also working on the other end of the situation. He always is. He's in control of the whole thing. And so Ruth realizes as an immigrant, she's going to be distrusted. But she knows enough about the law that she can go into a field and work because the law of Israel, the law of God's people says you're supposed to be kind to immigrants. You Republicans, hear me for a minute. We've got a problem with the illegal crossing. I get it. But I also want to remind you of what the Bible says, that little thing, that little book that God wrote. Be kind to the immigrant. So I want you to also have some compassion and some mercy, okay? I understand we need to obey the law. Okay, now they're here. They're not leaving. Can God's people be the first, please, to be kind? And not hateful and nasty? Listen to me. The, Ruth says, I'm going to be with God's people, and I'm going to go just wander into a field, and people should not throw rocks at me and shoot me with their AR, because they understand the law says, be kind to immigrants and the poor and the widow. I qualify on all three accounts, Ruth says. I am a widow. I have no, nothing to eat even today. And I am an immigrant perhaps God's people will actually act like God's people to me. And so she wanders over to find a place in the field. Now we're introduced to the first male character that she's going to interact with. So she went out and she entered into a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, now I could substitute those words and say, as God had determined, as it turned out, the author says, She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech happens to be Naomi's husband's name. After seven books I have taught you through, I'm on sermon, let me see here, number 18 of this series. (laughs) After 18 sermons in this series, I've preached through seven books of the Bible, giving you the main characters from seven books of the Bible. And after seven books about male characters who are incredibly flawed and horrible people, we finally come to a male character that I can say, yes, be like this guy. And now we've got there, though. This man you're being introduced is finally a guy you would like to shake his hand and sit down and a campfire and make some burgers and talk to him. This is a great guy. Now I want to kind of close this sermon with some thoughts about that. As I was thinking about what kind of a great guy this guy is, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's easy to get cynical when you've been mistreated. Matter of fact, tragedy turns us all into cynics. 
You suffer, Damon, you and I have talked a lot about this. When we suffer, it's easy then to just live as a cynic. Everything's bad. Everybody's bad. The world's bad. It's all bad. Bad, bad, bad. Everything's bad. But I want to remind you that pessimism, and I would even say cynicism, is not compatible with spirit-filled Christianity. If you're filled with God's Spirit, you cannot walk around saying, it's all bad, everything's bad, everybody's bad, situation's bad, it's never going to be good, because that is not the story of the Bible. And that is not the story of God's people. The story of God's people is we are humans who have put our faith in God, and we're going to live a very human experience on a broken planet that's in rebellion against God, but God has sent His Son to make it right, and He is going to make it right, He is making it right, And until all things are made right, we're supposed to be trying to live by the kingdom, the right values, and the right way to live, even now as we are born again in the kingdom of God. That's the story here. And so now we've got this good guy who shows up, but if you're cynical, you begin to say, well, I was hurt, I suffered, I went through a tragedy, so everything's bad, the world's bad, complain, complain, complain. That is not drawing people to Jesus Christ. Maybe I can make it a little more personal. If you've been mistreated by men, and that's very possible, I want to say to you, don't lose hope. There are still some good men in this community. If you've been hurt by women, it's quite possible But if you've been hurt by women, don't lose hope. There are some wonderful, wonderful women in our community. And it is possible to have another shot at love and another shot at companionship. And if this story does anything, it offers us hope that God is bringing lives together with happiness, where people can pursue God together and can be in Christian community and can advance His kingdom. I have two passages left. Boaz arrives at the fields and he sees an unfamiliar face. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. Is that the way your boss greets you in the morning? The Lord bless you. Jeff, do you run in and bless all your people in the name of Jesus every morning? You probably do. You're a good boss. I've never had a boss that blessed his people like that. Good morning. Welcome. Blessings. I usually show up here. Staff beats me by... Some minutes and I come in and they're all at the big table up there. And I usually walk in and say, all right, let's let the party begin. I'm here. Let's start. This boss walks in and he says, hey, blessings. God's blessings on you. And they, Boaz asked the overseers and his harvesters, who's this young woman belong to? It's a face I don't recognize. Everybody knows everybody in Bethlehem. Who's this? The overseer replies, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Oh, that's the idolater. That's what they're saying. This is the Canaanite that Naomi drug back here. Then the overseer quotes Ruth. When the woman showed up, she said to me, so we already know she asked permission from the foreman, walked up to him and introduced herself. He knows who she is. She made eye contact. She gave a firm handshake. But then again, I'm back to success in business, aren't I? She addressed the man, and, and he said, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. 
She came into the field. She has remained here from morning until now, and except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, I think you understand what the guy's saying to the big boss. The author has written this in such a way that at this point in the story, you see Boaz, you see Ruth, and you're supposed to start cheering for them. You're supposed to start, the tension is building now. And you're supposed to start saying in yourself, hey, he's a good guy. Look at him treating his people. Look, here's a good girl. Look at her treat." And you're seeing these two and you're saying, gosh, these two need to get together, don't they? And the author has written this in such a way that you should start cheering for love now. You start cheering for Boaz and Ruth to, to get some conversation going. And you've already been told about Boaz. He's kind to his workers. He's a landowner. He treats people with respect. He's taking care of the poor according to the laws of Israel by not reaping the corners and allowing the grain that falls to remain on the ground for the underprivileged. He's blessing people in the name of the Lord. And the author has revealed that Ruth is polite. She's asked permission. She's hardworking. She's assertive. She's worked all day in the sun, the foreman says, and she's only taken one short break to go sit in the shade. Well, that's a miracle right there. You say, wow, well, there's nothing to eat. And if she doesn't, she doesn't work, she's not going to have anything to eat. Here's my last paragraph. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. There's a lot of fields in Bethlehem. It's harvest time. Everybody's doing the same thing. But somehow you have landed in my field, and I'm saying to you, daughter, don't go into anybody else's field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've already told my men, do not lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, you go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this, she bowed down her face to the ground and she asked Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you have noticed me? And now the whole tension of the story rests in one word. Foreigner. I want you to feel that. Ruth says, there's a boundary between us. Foreigner, God's people still. And the whole tension of the story is resting right here in this one word, foreigner. Let me ask you my closing question this morning. Ruth said, I'm a foreigner. I've already heard what she pledged. Let me ask you a question. Who are God's people? And how do you get to be one? Who exactly are God's people? And how do you get to be one? Can a foreigner be accepted as one of God's people? Can an outsider break into the community of God? And you already know the answer. Let me ask it a different way. If God accepts someone by faith into his community, then shouldn't God's people accept that same person on the basis of their faith in God? Our heads are bowed.
and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I want to speak to two or three different groups that are here with us this morning. In this stillness now, I want to talk first of all to God's people who've been hurt. Not because you're flawed or you're sinful or it's, it's, not, it's not like that. You may have suffered tragedy and loss or sickness or whatever. Not, not because it's, you're not a good person. Because you're a human. And you're just having a human experience on planet earth that has rebelled against its God. That's all. Just a human experience. Which makes you in good company here this morning with all the rest of us who have also had such an experience. But here's my real question for you. If you've suffered, are you still mad at God? And if you are, I'm not angry with you and I'm not like judging you. I want to say to you, I understand. Pain is very real. It cuts very deep into us. But if we don't find a way to ask for forgiveness and don't find a way to deal with the pain, you're going to be bitter and you're going to be cynical. And that's not who you want to be. It's not who God wants you to be. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, kindness, gentleness, patience. Not, not bitterness and anger. If you're harboring some matter in your heart where you're just upset with God, maybe you've never even said it out loud, but it's kind of come into focus this morning. In this moment right now, I want you just to say to God, God, forgive me. God, you forgive me for being mad at you. I realize this morning that you're with me. You love me. You haven't forsaken me. You just talk that out with God for just a moment. And you ask for forgiveness. And you ask God to help you find a way to move forward. And live your life on mission with joy again. Ask God for a plot twist. Maybe you need a plot twist. Maybe you need a job upgrade. Maybe you're yearning for someone to love you this morning. You're, you're longing for a relationship that's real. Maybe you're in a relationship and you guys uh, just haven't fully committed to each other. What, what a great Sunday to take your loved one out to lunch and look in the eyes and say, This morning I made a commitment in my heart to you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And where you're buried, one day they'll bury me. That's my commitment to you. Some of you need to make a commitment to the community called the church. And you need to be in a covenant relationship with the other families here. I hope you'll exercise that as well to make that decision to be a part of our church family. Some of you need to be baptized. I want you to speak with us after service about that if you're one of those who need to be baptized. Make the commitment. 
There is joy in commitment. Commitment is the way forward for us. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about being a part of discipleship. Make that commitment to God this morning. Find Chris Yancey, Erica McNair after church. Go to the help desk. Say, I'm committed to discipleship this morning. I need somebody to walk with me. Who is your team? If you're walking alone this morning, that's your choice, but it's not best. What's much better is to have a team with you. There are people around you right now who will commit to you and who will walk with you and who will help you. But you'll have to do your part. You'll have to be the other half of that team. There's a table for two waiting in your future with a disciple maker on the other side. Lastly, let me speak to anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you feel a little bit like Ruth did, like an outsider. You've come to church today to hear what the church has to say, what what the Word of God has to say. And God's doing something in your heart. He's stirring you. You feel some emotion. You feel some conviction about sin. And you know you need that relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're ready to take that step of commitment and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, He said, For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And He will save you right now. If you are those people, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. God, I have no righteousness of my own, no way to save myself. God, I need you. And God, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, your Son that you sent to die on the cross. God, right now I can confess my sinfulness and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. Credit the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account. For in this moment, I commit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are my Lord and you are my Savior. From this moment, my full trust and belief is in you. I'm trusting in what you did on the cross and in your resurrection to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for loving me and thank you for taking me and making me a part of your family God I'm glad to be a part of God's people today God my commitment is I choose you and I choose your people thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for saving me today in Jesus name I pray